Welcome to Miranda Warnings Roundtable, discussing legal issues and current events. This week on Miranda Warnings Roundtable, we discuss Governor Kathy Hochul's nominee to be Chief Judge of New York's Court of Appeals, the Honorable Hector D. LaSalle, currently the presiding judge of New York's Appellate Division's Second Department. Under New York state law, Governor Hochul must select from a list of seven candidates determined by a bipartisan New York State Commission on Judicial Nomination. The governor's selected candidate must be considered for confirmation by the New York State Senate within 30 days of the nomination. Presiding Judge LaSalle was one of the seven candidates recommended by the commission. The New York State Bar Association, through its Committee on Judicial Nominations, investigated, interviewed, and rated all seven of the candidates and found each of them qualified to be Chief Judge of the New York State Court of Appeals. Presiding Judge LaSalle was one of three found by the New York State Bar Association to be well qualified for the position. The New York State Bar Association's highest possible rating, former Chief Judge of the New York Court of Appeals, Jonathan Lippman, in a recent Times Union article, commended the selection of presiding Judge LaSalle, calling him extraordinarily qualified. A group of 46 law professors have written a letter to Governor Hochul expressing concern over presiding Judge LaSalle's decisions. The group focuses on three decisions out of thousands that Judge LaSalle either wrote or participated in in his career. Although the New York State Bar Association found presiding Judge LaSalle to be well qualified to be Chief Judge of New York's Court of Appeals. We are a nonpartisan organization and do not take sides in the political battle taking place in the Senate over Judge LaSalle's nomination. However, the Court of Appeals and selection of its Chief Judge is of the utmost importance to the New York State Bar Association, its members, and to the legal community. We're joined at the round table by Vin Bonventry, the Robert Jackson Distinguished Professor of Law at Albany Law School and author of NewYorkCourtWatcher.com, where Professor Bonventry has written a three-part series on Chief Judge Designee LaSalle's uh, nomination. And we're also joined by Liz Benjamin of Marathon Strategies. Just to be clear, I haven't written anything. You're already heckling. I'm heckling, yep. Mm-hmm. Former uh, of Marathon Strategies, yes, former host yes. of Capital Tonight, steeped in Albany politics for decades, uh, and and a heckler, known heckler. Uh, this... If I'm a known heckler, Vin is a known liberal. She she doesn't write. She doesn't write, but she sure talks a lot. Oh, it's all right. And we're we're and we're very grateful to have both of you on to talk about this very important nomination. This nomination has become a political battle, as you know, in the New York State Senate. And I should point out that the comments of Van Liz and myself, for that matter, although often educational and insightful, uh, are not the policy or position of the New York State Bar Association. So let's get to it. Uh, I'd like to start on a positive note with what Governor Hochul said about her choice. She said, New York's Court of Appeals has a long history as a beacon of justice, and Judge LaSalle is an outstanding jurist in that tradition. He has the skills, experience, and intellect to ensure that our highest court is seen as a leader across the country. Judge LaSalle has a sterling reputation as a consensus builder, and I know he can unite the court in service of justice. I don't think he can 
Well, let's say, let's talk about that. Is it an experienced, respected, and, and moderate judge exactly what the Court of Appeals needs right now? Well, before the uh, commission even came out with its list, I had been hearing from quite a few individuals, prominent individuals and liberal Democrats, that uh, Hector LaSalle was terrific, that they hoped that he would be put on the list. Mm -hmm. So I don't know the man uh, either professionally or uh, socially, but what I had heard from those who do know him, who've worked with him, who have argued before him, he comes very, very highly recommended. So the former chief judge, Jonathan Lippman, was quoted in the past 24 hours in a variety of locations saying that actually Hector LaSalle is exactly what the court needs right now, as particularly since it's trying to recover and get back still underway uh, to its uh, operations in the post-COVID era after the court system was largely shut down. Uh, and needs to really, from an operational standpoint, recover from that and perhaps modernize, which I know is sort of an outside chance when it comes to the court system. But still, his uh, administrative capability, I think, is something that people feel very strongly about. And the historic nature of his uh, uh, appointment is significant. I mean, let's just be clear, right? I mean, he would be historic uh, as the first Latino to hold the position. And that's significant. However, Vin, when you say that you had heard uh, signals uh, regarding Hector LaSalle, we also heard, not signals, very clear clarion calls from a number of elected officials and advocates on the progressive side of the aisle saying that they were unhappy with the direction of the court under Janet DeFiore and they wanted a change and they wanted somebody significantly left. So this is not a surprise, what we find ourselves right. at, at this moment, right? Right. That, right. And uh, I would agree with them on that. I think the Court of Appeals over the last several years has lost a great deal of prestige. It has not been the uh, great uh, state high court that it has been historically, traditionally. That's absolutely true. And... Would I prefer, just like them, a more liberal chief judge to turn the court around so that it becomes, again, a bold, progressive court like it was under Jonathan Lippmann? Absolutely. But that does not mean that Hector LaSalle is not a fine choice, and that doesn't mean that his record ought to be mischaracterized by those who would prefer somebody more liberal. I think let, let's just also note that before we even delve into the meat of this debate, and, and it's very nuanced, I mean, there's a lot of people who are weighing in, and then there's a lot of politics at play uh, yes. with the Democrats making uh, an interesting uh, attempt yesterday to stack the Judiciary Committee in the Senate. So Hector LaSalle never even makes it past there because they're worried that the Republicans will cross the aisle and give the votes to him that is necessary to get him confirmed, which was a pretty blatant uh, move in terms of legal, but still blatant in terms of, one might argue, manipulating democracy. But the interesting thing that we find ourselves here, uh, because really, one might argue, the politiz politicization of the Supreme Court has set the stage for, I think, uh, lower yes. courts to be uh, scrutinized with a, a, a more uh, intense light. Yeah, so 
you know, there's nothing wrong with scrutinizing uh, no. a judge's record that is no. going before uh, to to go to the court of appeals. Uh, and and uh, presiding judge LaSalle has a substantial judicial uh, opinion record uh, to look at. I think one of the concerns is that uh, this group of law professors, and I assume, Vin, that you're not one of them. I did uh, not sign that letter. No, no uh, you know, cherry picked a couple of decisions yes. that a first of all, Judge LaSalle didn't even write. Uh, he signed on to. So, uh, you know, he supports it, but he didn't write those decisions. And secondly, and this is what I'd like to talk about. They don't really stand for the propositions that those law professors uh, say that they do. And I know, Vin, that you've written uh, a nice piece that came out yesterday that goes into a little detail. And, and I think in this particular instance, we're going to need to get down into the weeds because mm -hmm. those decisions I don't think have been fully and fairly represented by those that are opposed to Judge LaSalle. You just, you come to a point, I mean, that's very interesting in terms of the ability to manipulate decisions uh, by the court for political purposes. For example, and this is not an instance in which Judge LaSalle was involved, but let's say hypothetically, uh, you had a case before you in which you had an individual who clearly was seeking to perpetrate a fraud by um, a, fall, a false slip and fall in a Walmart. And if you found against the individual in favor of the Walmart, are you therefore pro-corporate America? Or are you anti-fraud? So I think that there to determine an individual's ideology based on a few, as David noted, cherry-picked cases in which he didn't write the decision. But I think it's fair to say that if you put your name to something, then you agree to it as a judge. Fair. So let's put that aside. I mean, let's assume that he agreed, or he would have been in the dissent. But the point is to say, well. Based on X, Y, Z right. cherry picked cases, he therefore is anti-abortion or anti-union or anti-what have you is not necessarily um, fair. You're right. surprisingly making a very good point. Uh, Th thank Liz. you, Din. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> it happens once a year, at least. Maybe because she read your article. I didn't actually. <laughs> be I oh, didn't right. on purpose read the article because oh. I didn't want to be. I didn't want to be uh, clouded or swayed in any way before I came in. You mean this. swayed in the opposite direction? I don't because. have any particular standing on this other than I think that the process um, has definitely been called into question. Right. But it's certainly, I think, a healthy development that some people or more people are actually looking into the record of whoever it is that's going to be placed on the Court of Appeals. I mean, come on, usually it's a joke. That's true. Right? Usually it's a joke. Um, and law professors, most law professors have no clue about what goes on at the New York Court of Appeals or the New York uh, Judiciary because they're so obsessed with the federal system and the United States Supreme Court. So it is a healthy development that somebody is taking an interest in it. I do salute that. On the other hand, uh, when when these groups, whether it's particular progressive professors or organizations, when they look at a judge's record, I mean, come on, you should be honest and you should be fair about it. And I just don't think they have been fair at all with regard to Judge 
LaSalle's record. Now, is he a liberal? No, it doesn't seem as though he's particularly liberal. Is he somebody that I think would be the great, like I thought Jonathan Lippmann was great? No, it's so far in his record, it doesn't, his record doesn't suggest that. But by all accounts, serious accounts, is he a fine jurist? Absolutely. So out of the, the cases in question that the opponents have cited yep. as problematic, it seems to me that the area where they have the strongest leg to stand on to the degree that they have a leg to stand on is the is the union, is the labor argument. All right. Well, let's talk about that, because I, I, I think that there's uh, they've said that he's anti-union because of a the case of uh, cable vision cable systems vision case. versus communications workers, right. right? And I'm going to skip the site, 131 AD 3rd, 1082, because you should read it and see what it's about, right? It's a defamation case. Uh, they brought a defamation case against the, the union, against the union leaders, and against the union leaders mm -hmm. in their personal individual capacity. The case was dismissed against the union, and the union leaders as union leaders. Yes. But but, but Judge LaSalle, uh, the decision that Judge LaSalle signed on to uh, said that if they could prove that the union leaders were acting in their individual capacity, the case could go forward. Not that he was ruling against them in their individual capacity, just that the individuals would have the right to bring a lawsuit against someone in their individual capacity. And as far as I can tell, that hold that decision is in compliance with the law. It's complete. It's completely in compliance with the New York Court of Appeals precedent, the Martin V. Curran uh, precedent, where you know uh, that the union cannot be sued for defamation. Union officials cannot be sued for defamation. But the Court of Appeals made it clear that you know libel claims, defamation claims, can be brought against union members in their individual capacities. And that's exactly what the appellate division said in this and, particular case. And let's also, just just as an aside, libel is, has a very high bar, particularly for individuals who have who are pub, have public standing. So an individual who has a public position, like a union leader and is well known within a certain sector. I mean, you're not talking about like, you know, um, Leonardo DiCaprio in terms of stature when recognition in the public sphere, but there it, it is very difficult to prove libel against it, against someone. So I, I think it's important to note that this was a motion to dismiss is a is a procedural motion right at the beginning of the case. This was a procedural motion. It talked about issues of of law. It didn't get into the substance of the case at all. There's nothing in that decision that would indicate either pro or anti-union yeah. sentiments N nothing not a in union that case. Busting not case. in a procedural not in a procedural motion no i mean so i mean the professor said that this shows hostility to labor and to workers oh come on that's that's not what it shows well, i mean you know well I'm there was a sorry. dismissal of the case against the union yeah, the case was dismissed. Well, so then, then uh, let's then subsequently go to the abortion case. That's a First Amendment case, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, well, let's. Uh, and I want to cite. I, I hate to interrupt, but I want to cite the case because the case should be read. It's Evergreen Association v. Schneiderman, yes. uh, one fifty three eighty third eighty seven. It was Schneiderman who was so pro-choice. Just to be clear, like again, course. let's remember what we're talking about here. There's a case 
I mean, obviously he was he was at the time the um, state's attorney, right? That's what you are as a state attorney general. And so subsequently he is the one who's being named in the suit. But I mean, his dad was a leader and a significant supporter of um, Planned Parenthood. He was always super pro-choice. So again, you know, let's just look at the context because I think contextually we are not we're not considering the details. We are looking with broad brush strokes, as Vin just noted, hostility yeah. to unions. Like that's that's very arbitrary. I, right. I mean, yeah, just yeah. And you know, this this the Evergreen Association, which has been referred to as an abortion case, is really doesn't have anything to do with a, a, a woman's right to choose or abortion rights. The attorney general served a subpoena for documents on a pregnancy crisis center that was alleged to be illegally practicing medicine right. without a license, right? And the Pregnancy Crisis Center wasn't an abortion clinic. It was, in fact, quite the opposite. Right. The concern yes. was that they were uh, dissuading uh, women from, from having abortions potentially and potentially illegally practicing medicine without a license. The attorney general sort of uh, investigated this, sort of uh, had a subpoena for uh, a broad spectrum of information, which the second department upheld the issuance of the subpoena for the information related to whether they were practicing medicine without a license. But right, but, for most of that information, yes. Right, and but for the other stuff like donors, donor right. lists, and uh, that had nothing to do with the issue at hand, they said, well, no, you've gone too far. So there's, again, nothing in that decision that would indicate uh, pro-life or anti-women's health, nothing And what did the law professor that. say about that then specifically? Oh, How is it that- it was, They it said it was hostile. shocking. Hostile. They said it was shocking and uh, that LaSalle does not understand the severity of the threat to women's rights. But how? But, I don't, how? Well, well, not only that, but, you know, uh, to follow up on what David was saying, the United States Supreme Court has made it clear that with regard to information um, concerning membership in these nonprofit organizations, who the donors are, that that smacks up against the First Amendment right of free association. Right. The Supreme Court, in fact, just recently, maybe a year and a half ago, in the American Pros uh, Americans for Prosperity case, ruled that California could not require not-for-profit organizations to disclose who their donors were, who their major donors were, because that would chill the right to association. So come on. I mean, I think that uh, this opinion, this decision was absolutely correct. And, you know, I'm a liberal. I'm pro-choice. I just don't see this as an anti-pro-choice, anti-woman decision at all. It, it doesn't substantively address anything with no. uh, healthcare matters. You know, it, I was thinking about it would be akin to let's say you you had an abortion clinic, and they were violating some sort of zoning law where they built uh, an addition without getting proper zoning. Mm. If you and they violated the zoning law, and if a, a court were to hold yes, you did in fact violate the zoning law. Does that mean that the judge is, you know, anti-abortion or, or pro-life? It has nothing to do with it. And to, to cast this, uh, this uh, blanket over a judge is, I think, you know, something that should be really, really looked into 
before you start saying things so like again that. i mean we find ourselves back to the original point which was had we not been in a situation in post dobbs then perhaps people would not feel as uh incited in terms of the need to in their opinion protect and create uh, a progressive barrier at the state level now let's just be clear sure. the right to access an abortion is in no way in threat in new york i mean in fact the state has made it clear that it is welcoming individuals who are coming from other states and is willing to help them to secure abortion services if their own states have you know not um, allowed that in the wake of Dobbs. So the, the the idea that somehow we have to create some you know pro progressive protection wall to prevent New Yorkers from being uh, you know hurt by decisions that are made at the federal level is just false. But this is and and this is just. This is not really about, and I think that what we're what we've exposed here, just by sort of this and this surface discussion, I mean, it's not been all of that terribly difficult to find these uh, cases and to just read them and to really figure out what they're about. This is about politics. This is not about jurisprudence. It's not right, but uh, you know, I mean, Dobbs was an absolutely dreadful decision, but. There is a silver lining to Dobbs, and that is, and you were just addressing this, uh, Liz, and that is that maybe lawyers and judges will start actually paying attention to the state. Well, there was a decision in South civil Carolina. Rights and civil liberties protections. But just South Carolina, the state uh, in the last South 48 Carolina, hours. That's fine. Right, yeah. So we are seeing already that at the state level, even in a state like South Carolina, which is not necessarily a bastion of progressive thought, I mean, I'm that's a broad brush statement, but you know what I'm saying, it's not, not New York, not California, they just overturned this, the, the ban, the six week ban, if I, am I saying that right? They yes. just overturned the ban. So there is an understanding at the state level in at, uh, across the nation, even in states and, and voters too, we saw subsequently yes. overturning some yes. of the more egregious in, in terms of uh, preventing access to care for women who need it or want it or under um, the advisement of their own medical professionals seek it. The, the purpose is uh, uh, we saw voters um, overturn it. So there are certainly um, backstops against Dobbs. This, though, is something entirely different. I see it, and like again, I want to reiterate that you know, that I think it's important that what David said at the beginning. I am not speaking on behalf of NISBA. I am not speaking on behalf of anyone but myself. But I think that this is clearly an attempt by the progressives to curry favor with their base. That's what this is about: elected officials seeking to curry favor with their base in an increasingly left-leaning state, and a governor who is you know also trying to strike a balance and was under fire during the campaign for not being progressive enough and also not being conservative enough when it comes to public safety i mean the woman is stuck between a rock and a hard place on any number of levels but this is really just purely about politics plain and simple and do the the progressive politics really want to turn the new york court of appeals into something akin to the United States Supreme Court. Well, clearly they that, do, or we wouldn't be. Well, having yeah, I mean, so, you know, Democratic governors have to appoint somebody who's very left wing, right, ideologically very, very liberal. And then Republican governors 
have to appoint somebody to the Court of Appeals who is very, very ideologically conservative. And then we get this disaster that we have now at the United States Supreme Court. I and think that would be terribly unfortunate. Well, look, there's also another wrinkle to this, which is that you're talking about a court that made a decision that made the legislature very angry when it came to redistricting. And I do think that the legislature now I don't, nobody said this to me specifically, and I don't think anyone would own up to it, or, but is trying to exact its pound of flesh in response to that particular decision. I, I, I think there's some truth to that. And I yeah. think, you know, they were obviously upset with the court over the redistricting, and uh, we've already discussed that, but they have to move on and they mm -hmm. have to think about what's going to be in the best interest of the state going forward. I mean, uh, Judge LaSalle certainly had nothing to do with the redistricting case. Correct. And I, I, I think I agree with what the comments that were made that this is really more of not looking at whether he would be a good chief, but but just to see if you can play to your uh, your progressive base without really looking at uh, what the judge is going to do so and, and his capabilities. Let's assume and uh, that he makes it through the Judiciary Committee, which I can't since they've now stacked the Judiciary Committee, I can't see how that would happen. But let's assume that he does. And that and, you know, my understanding is that there's still some uh, in the corners uh, uh, where his support is, including on the second floor, which is in the governor's office, they still feel fairly confident that they're going to be able to get this across the line. One might suggest that perhaps there was an opportunity to to, to cut a deal. And I'm sorry for folks who feel that that's um, uh, inappropriate to have a conversation regarding the judiciary and deal making. But the reality is, is that there was an opportunity uh, when the legislature was raising its own pay. Uh, or raising the pay of the next seated legislature, which is effectively a lot like the last seated legislature, although not entirely. But there was an opportunity for the governor to, you know, try and strike a deal, and she did not for whatever reason. I, I think you have to give her credit for yes, that. Yes, well, you might say that it was. A, she might say inappropriate. I think that Hector LaSalle is such a strong candidate; he can stand on his own, and I don't need to make a deal. I don't know what her thinking was, but perhaps that's what it was. So the point is, let's say that he gets through the Judiciary Committee, and then he gets to the floor. And then he can't get made unless the Republicans make him. Now we're in a situation where he's now hamstrung entering in to his chiefdom mm -hmm. because he's the progressives will say, see, that proves our point. He needed Republicans to get him over the line. Well, there's nothing. I don't think that's going to hamstring him. Or I don't think there's anything wrong with having a chief judge that's supported by both Democrats. You don't, but they do. The well, progressives I, do. I don't I don't think uh, as a general rule, there's anything wrong with having a chief judge that's supported by Republicans and Democrats. He's He's going to have to he's got substantial democratic support as well so right. to have a chief in the middle especially and we've talked about this a number of times the the court is divided to have somebody that's chief that's in the middle that could possibly unify both sides is i would think a good thing that's not working for roberts well well, I, I'm, I'm not <laughs> I'm sure. Just, okay. I'm just I don't know. Maybe it is. Okay, if, you, if, if you were right? able to we see this, you would have Supreme been really. Well, it may not be really working for Roberts but, well, because that court is just hopelessly dreadful. You know, he's one of the few decent judges on that court. But uh, with look, with regard to the Court of Appeals, let's just be clear about it. It has it has been a pretty 
bad court, a pretty weak court for the last several years. You're not going to find any serious observer of this court or of state courts around the country to say this is one of the great courts. No, and it's isn't just their not. caseload very low. It's Has not a good court. Hasn't the caseload also been low then? Low? It's it's ridiculously low. Why it's why do you egg him on like that? You know because it, I like you know to, what he's I just been, think it's I look it's it's, mantra. it's well it's true though. I mean look, there was a time when the New York State uh high court was a court that people looked to for um significant for guidance and for groundbreaking decisions. I'm not certain that if anyone knows it exists anymore outside of New York, that people are looking to that, with the exception of the Happy the Elephant case, which was a very interesting case. But wait wait a minute, Liz, 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 you don't have to go that far into the past. When Lipman was the chief, I had chief justices from around the country telling me how influential the court was. They're all paying attention to the Court of Appeals again. It hasn't been that long in the past. When Wachler was the chief, at least in his early years, the same thing, very influential. When Kay was the chief early mm -hmm. on, influential. When Cook was the chief, Fold was the chief. You don't have to go that far in the past. The or we're going to do another podcast with uh, with uh, Vin Bonventry's top 10 rock star chief. We've judges, had some right? really, <laughs> we had some really. Two people will listen to that. Everyone, right, can, they has, can't all be the best. We've had some really superb chief judges who have ensured that the Court of Appeals was one of the or the best court then, in the country. Just, just for curiosity's sake, what's pending before the court right now of significance that we think that the state that the court has the capability of reestablishing itself in that matter. I mean, it also has to agree to hear cases, right. obviously, which the, right. ostensibly the new chief would, you know, have a significant say in. Well, the interesting about your question is that with regard to the Court of Appeals, it's not like the Supreme Court where you say, oh, there are these, you know, five or 10 cases coming that, you know, just blockbuster cases. What happens at the Court of Appeals are there are these cases which might seem to be routine. So there are these routine search and seizure cases or routine interrogation cases or routine workers uh, rights cases. And they become major precedents at the Court of Appeals, depending upon what the court does with them. So, for example, with regard to um, search and seizure cases, with regard to uh, appeals of post-conviction, uh, post-conviction relief cases, the Court of Appeals has just made a disaster out of the jurisprudence in New York over the last few years. And these are cases that most people wouldn't know about. But, you know, those of us who are complete nerds and apparently have nothing better to do than read all the Court of Appeals decisions, we see these things and they become precedents and if you have a great court, again, the court can start slicing and dicing and re and make some distance between itself and these prior cases. What's the timeline? In other words, is there a time by which uh, Hector LaSalle's nomination expires? 30 days, right? right? No, it days. doesn't expire. It doesn't expire. They have to vote on it 
yeah. within 30 days. Unless he recuse, unless he removes himself well, from consideration. Well, yeah, that's, that's I'm not right. considering that. I'm not saying yeah, he I don't, I don't should, think there's any but indication we have, that no, there's happening. not. But there, there have been, for example, um, appointments. I mean, that's what happened to Garland, if I remember correctly. Yeah, but I, I don't know that that's happened with the Court of Appeals. No, it's never happened they, with the Court of Appeals. There's nothing saying, in the law that says that the uh, nomination expires. And in fact, as we know, if the Senate does not does not make its decision, confirm or reject within thirty days, there doesn't. There's no penalty, and there's nothing to suggest that if they do it in sixty days, that's not valid. In fact, the law seems to suggest that even if the deadlines are missed, it's still valid. We saw that with Cuomo. Remember yeah. when Cuomo? Yeah, with Cuomo right. refused to reappoint uh, Victoria Graffio. Oh, right, yeah. He missed the deadline, and. The point was that there's no penalty, number one. And number two, what he did was still valid. That's what the law says. Yeah, they said that they say there's a deadline in, in the law, but there's no penalty it, if, right. if it doesn't occur. That's I right. Wanna, I want to talk, if I could, about there's one more case that the group raised uh, and where they said that uh, Judge LaSalle has, you know, oh, run Corbin? roughshod. Yeah, Corbin over roughshod over due process. Oh, this was Lord. a. This was a case where uh, a criminal defendant agreed to a plea and as part of the plea agreed to waive any right to appeal, then later decided after he pled that he wanted an appeal. Uh, and the second department that decision that Judge LaSalle signed on to, uh, you know, affirmed the, the lower court. The waiver, that, yeah. The waiver, the affirmed the waiver. And this is being portrayed as somehow running roughshod over due process. due process. I mean, it's a waiver of, of, of an appeal, uh, right? Do you have any thoughts? I'm sure you wrote about this too, then, yeah, right? And, well, let me go further because the professors went further and they said that this opinion of the appellate division, which LaSalle joined, was repudiated by the Court of Appeals. No, it was not. It absolutely was. The, I don't know like, where does this not concern you that these law problem. professors. Well, well, what they what happened was five years later, the Court of Appeals took a different case right. with a different set of facts and ruled differently That's because nothing. because the trial judge had mischaracterized the and nature they, of the waiver of appeal in the second not? case. I'm in the sorry, second but case, what does all this say? About a, a whole separate issue regarding the um, the I don't want I don't know what the right word is the law professors themselves and the understanding that they may or may not have of the law, which is a little bit concerning. Well, I think they know the law, right? I mean, they're they're just not they're. What, they're choosing to it. manipulate it for political gain. I guess that's well, fine for law professors, but not for anybody else. Sure. Okay. Well, well I I would bet that. Most of the professors that sign probably don't know, again, know that much about the Court of Appeals or New York law, but they they heard and they heard by individuals they rely upon that, oh, that Hector LaSalle is a terrible conservative and he's going to continue what the De Fiori court has been doing. And so they said, OK, we trust you and we sign on to it. I think that's what happened. I think that's exactly what happened. I see the names of some of these professors. If they read these cases, they would know exactly what David 
is talking don't about they have the, a due diligence responsibility to do that before they start signing on willy-nilly to to, to to letters i mean look we don't know that they didn't we don't know that they didn't we're not trying to cast aspersions necessarily but i do agree and i'm a lay person and i read these cases and i was like okay I'm not, I don't see the fact pattern that is bearing out in terms of support of the case that these individuals are making. So they probably didn't read them. They didn't read them. They were told by somebody they relied upon that these cases suggest this, that, and the other thing about LaSalle, which they just don't. And, and the problem that we're seeing now is that this is being expressed to the senators that are voting mm -hmm. on the nominee, and they haven't read the cases either, and they're taking as gospel this letter from the law professors without bothering to either read it or to try to investigate a little further as to what the, the judges well, actually or worse yet they have investigated or the or they, they or or they don't care to investigate because it's not again getting back right. to because right. i'm starting to sound like a broken record but whatever that's no but i think you're absolutely right liz i think you're right they're it's about politics. It's about politics. It's not about whether or not Hector LaSalle would actually be a good chief judge, which, and again, look, this isn't a lifetime appointment, right? So I know a lot is at stake here, but it's not like the U.S. Supreme Court, in fact, where Hector LaSalle gets on the court on the court and then subsequently goes rogue and decides to be whatever <laughs> it is that, you know, which we have seen at the U.S. Supreme Court on numerous occasions. Once you say a lot of things in your confirmation process or you try to say as little as possible and then you get on the court and you expose yourself for whoever you are and then you grow and change and you're lobbied by your colleagues and et cetera and so forth. So that's not the case with the with the high court in New York. There is actually a date certain by which you expire, um, not physically, you might well expire, but you, you can't stay on past. So the, per the point is like, we actually don't have any indication that he would be the boogeyman that these individuals insist that he would be other than for political gain. Well, we have good indication that he is not the boogeyman they're suggesting. But also, to be fair, his record does not suggest that he's the kind of liberal progressive judge, at least so far, that, you know, many of the liberal politicians and liberal professors would hope to have been appointed to the Court of Appeals. I mean, come on. Uh, you know, I mean, and look, Let's not mince any words. Uh, if if the commission was not so disgraceful in excluding some of the sitting members of the Court of Appeals, right, like Jenny Rivera and Rowan Wilson and Shirley Troutman, uh, we probably wouldn't be in this position because I would imagine that Hochul would have nominated either Wilson or Troutman. Yeah, but look, you know, we've got a commission that that is a political entity, right? It was set up. Oh, you uh, think it's by, political? Well, well it Whoa. certainly is because it by its very <laughs> bylaws, it has to be bipartisan, right? It has got yes. it's got six Democrats, six Republicans. So are you surprised that that it's it's not uh, a full fledged you know, ultra liberal selection. No, it's a moderate selection because that's the way it was set up. There's so, nothing nefarious about it. Uh, well, it was well, set up to be so to be well, to be. Well, it was on. set up that way. Fine. So it the point is, if you have way. a problem with the outcome of the process, then it, then then quote unquote fix, address, change, revisit the process. But to castigate the outcome of a process that is designed, as David just noted, to be a middle of the road pragmatic 
uh, experience, then, you know, that's what you end up with. If you have a desire to make the process and manipulate the process or change the process such that it becomes an outcome or it gets an outcome that you're more happy with as a, as a progressive, then do that. But to, to say, well, this particular process after the fact resulted in something that we don't like is kind of crying over spilt milk. Well, no, I, I'm not. I'm not at all talking about the fact that the uh, the commission came out with a list that you know, and I wanted only really liberal um, candidates, you know, on that list. We're not talking about that, but we're talking about how could you exclude certain of these people who apparently did apply to the court? And look, we know darn well that in the past. The, this commission has put people on the list that certainly do not belong on the list. They just did not belong as a matter of merit, as a matter of pure merit. And to say that these lists that have been produced by the commission are based on pure merit is just laughable. It's just laughable. Are there usually people who are terrific that are on this list, whether they're liberal or conservative? Yes. Are there usually a few real clunkers on the list? Yeah, that's also true. To that's be clear, also... Vin Von Venturi using the word clunker is not something that we sanction or necessarily support. I just want to put that out. <laughs> clunker is only Vin. I, and I, I'll say this, you know, the Bar Association looked at the entire list, found every all seven of the individuals on the list to be qualified and three, including Judge LaSalle, to be well-qualified yes. at the highest rating, right? Yes. So there was no real clunkers. I mean, some might be, you could view as potentially more experienced or more visionary, but there was no clunkers on the list. No, I think this was a I think this was a pretty strong list. I think it would have been even stronger if you had some other people on the list well, who I'm okay. sure who I am sure were deliberately excluded by some of the com commissioners the way they were. Well, voted. just to be clear also the speculation uh, in advance of the list coming out, or even I think even of the making of the list was that, you know, Rowan Wilson would be a great choice because Rowan Wilson would give the governor two bites at the apple if in That's fact right. she'd- Or so, Troutman, you're right. Or Troutman. Or Troutman, yeah. Right, so, uh, so the idea that, you know, maybe some people in some corners thought that she shouldn't get two bites of the I don't know. But again, like the idea just to level set that the idea that somehow the judiciary and we have had this conversation and I think we will probably have it every single time we get together. The idea that the judiciary is somehow above politics or no. or or not political or whatever is just horse feathers. Horse feathers horse again. Feathers. We're, 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 hey, I said clunker. That was cleaner than horse gonna, feathers. Gonna, uh, horse feathers is not dirty. This is a family I, show. I wanted show. to say something else entirely. I did not because David was giving me the stink eye. <laughs> well, you know the, um, you know, you know Liz talks. I write. Oh, and boy, sometimes here we go. sometimes I write. But well, I hope you're writing down what she's saying. Right, and, uh, because it's all well, it's all good. Well, it's all Liz, good. Liz is brilliant. She knows I love her. But look, um, I've actually been looking at cases now, which uh, the professors uh, did not mention, and these oh, progressive groups did not mention. And actually, there are opinions written by LaSalle that are pretty darn liberal. Ooh, uh, are you gonna wait? Did you write about that? 
coming out. I'm writing about that oh, right now. Oh, that's well, a good one. What's the difference? You don't read what I write anyway. We I now. skim. Now she's in <laughs> You can see it, NewYorkCourtWatcher.com. No, yeah. NewYorkCourtWatcher.com. It'll be out. Plug, free plug. It'll probably, it'll, I was working it'll on it. probably be out before our podcast is released. So go to NewYorkCourtWatcher.com. Right. You can find out all you need to know about presiding judge LaSalle's uh, past decisions uh, in the opinion of our our wonderful guest, Professor Vin Bonventry. I want to thank you, Vin. I want to thank you, Liz. Uh, this has been a great discussion to be continued. We will we'll see what happens and uh, we'll talk soon. Thank you both. Thank you. Thank you both. This has been Miranda Warnings, a New York State Bar Association podcast. You have the right to subscribe, rate, and review.